Okay. Good morning. When, uh, Dan, when's the women's event? 13th of Feb. Got it, very good. Right, we're uh, continuing the second part of our series on joy. If you weren't here last week, doesn't matter. Uh, looking at different aspects of, of the subject of joy each week for the next couple of months and using the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians to do that. Now, everybody um, wants to be happier, and one of my hopes is that this series will help us to be a, a happier church and a happier people. And of course, the question is, how do you, how do you get happy? And certainly it's um, better to think about positive things and negative things. If you want to be, if you want to be happy, uh, it's more helpful to think on things which are positive than things which are negative. That will make you happier. But uh, that can take actually some effort because often just by default we tend to focus on the negative. We tend to think about the things which aren't going as well. And we tend to have lots of negative uh, news come through from the media. And just the news is always depressing. And so we can find out our thoughts tend to drift just by default towards the negative unless we choose to think towards things which are positive. Now, uh, David Murray in his excellent book, The Happy Christian, which I really cannot recommend enough. He talks about this in terms of how it affected how psychologists operate. So this, until the late 90s, for everyone's psychological study about happiness and thriving, there were 17 studies in depression and other disorders. With this abnormally high negative to positive research ratio, most psychologists spent their time helping people with problems get back to an average human experience. Their aim was to help people who were operating at subnormal levels to get back to normal. Sober up alcoholics, remove anxiety, reduce sadness, cool down anger, and so on. Little attention was given to making people happy and optimistic, to lifting them above the average, and to encouraging human flourishing and well-being. Oh, I pressed the wrong one. Ah, there you go. In 1998, Martin Seligman, then president of the American Psychological Association, rebelled against this imbalanced negativity and led a shift to studying the positive side of the curve, the above average, the abnormally happy, and so on. Thus, a new discipline of positive psychology was born with a new emphasis on what works rather than what's broken. Instead of traditional psychology's focus on why are people unhappy and how can we fix their problems, positive psychology asks what makes people happy and how can we help them flourish and excel? It's a good question. Why are some people happier than others and what can the rest of us learn from them in order to be happier ourselves? It's a very good question. Now, apparently, um, about 50% is down to genetics, which is your personality type, and some people just are fortunate to be born happier, and some people are born more miserable. And it's like, it's not fair, but that's how it is. It's like some people are born better looking, and some people are born more intelligent, and it's not fair, and it, but it's just how it is. Some people are born happier. 50%. About 10% is reckoned to be down to uh, Im improving your life circumstances. If you make a particular effort to change something in your life, uh, that can make you happier, but only by about 10%. And about 40% that's left then is in terms of just the day-to-day -day choices you make to choose to be happy. And really that 40% is the interesting thing. There's nothing you can do about your genetics, and there's not much you can do in terms of a total life transformation, become a millionaire or whatever. Uh, even that would only give you 10% kind of margin. What really counts is that 40%, where day by day we can make choices which can lead to us feeling happier or 
not. Now we're going to look at an example today of the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi. And Paul writes this in a context which doesn't look very promising. He's in prison in the city of Rome and he's chained to a Roman soldier as he writes this letter. But he seems to be very happy. He seems to be focusing on the positive. He's making the choice to be joyful. And in this instance, in the passage we're going to look at today, the thing which is bringing Paul joy is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached. Let's read it together. Philippians chapter 1, page 691, and it's verses 12 to 18. Paul writes this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's happy. Now, maybe Paul was fortunate. Maybe he was one of those people who had happy genes, and that was the way he was born. Um, certainly, his life circumstances don't look particularly promising. He's in jail, chained to a Roman soldier. But he's, he's rejoicing. He's positive. He seems to be seeing an out, a good outcome of his situation. Now, what can we learn from that? What can we learn from Paul's positive psychology, which might help us to be happier too? We look at a number of choices that Paul made, which led him to this place of rejoicing. First thing is that Paul had a clear goal in life. He had clearly chosen to pursue something which gave him a sense of mission and purpose. He's focused. And the most significant thing that has happened to Paul is not that he's imprisoned. The most significant thing that's happened to Paul is that he has met Jesus Christ. And that shapes everything else. And that's the thing that he most wants others to experience too. He wants others to have the same experience he's had of an encounter, a life-changing encounter with Jesus. That's his goal. And everything else is just the context in which he's going to work that out. Um, so whether he's in Athens debating in a uh, highbrow lecture theatre, or whether he's on a boat travelling somewhere, or whether he's in a prison cell, the thing that Paul wants to do is to make Christ known. That's his goal in life. And if he's doing that, he's happy. That's the choice he's made. If I can proclaim Christ, I will be happy. And for us, there's a, a question, do we have a clear goal in life? Do we know what our purpose is? Without a clear goal, without a clear purpose, it's difficult to know joy, it's difficult to know happiness. Without a clear goal and purpose, we just tend to meander through life and do tend to think about all the negative stuff rather than choose positive decisions. Paul had a clear goal in his life, and it gave him joy. Second thing we can see is that Paul had chosen to be a positive influence upon other people. He knew that his example influenced others. And the remarkable thing about what he recounts here is that his conduct while he's in chains is influencing the conduct of those who are not in chains. 
that he as a follower of Jesus is having a big impact on other followers of Jesus because of how he's conducting himself while he's in prison, chained to a Roman soldier. And he says in verse 14 here that his imprisonment has made most of the other believers bolder in them talking about Jesus as well. And boldness is a really important Christian characteristic. Without boldness, the gospel would never get shared. It would never be proclaimed. No one would hear about Jesus without boldness in proclaiming it. We can see that right at the beginning of the story of the Christian church in Acts 4, just after the day of Pentecost, when the church began to gather and build in Jerusalem, and Peter and John were leading the church in Jerusalem at the time, and, and they're, they're preaching Jesus Christ, and as a consequence, they get arrested, and they're threatened uh, with all kinds of terrible things if they keep talking about Jesus. And then they go back to their friends, the other believers, and uh, tell them what's happened, and it says the believers pray. Uh, let's pick it up, pick it up at um, uh, verse 29 of Acts chapter chapter 4. They pray and said, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It's amazing that's how they pray. I think if this was me and, uh, and, and there'd been threats against the, the, the leaders, then probably the first thing we'd pray for is protection or deliverance. But that's not the first thing that the believers here pray for. The first thing they pray for is boldness. Give us more boldness, O oh God. Um, look upon your servant, look upon their threats, and grant your servants to continue to speak your word of all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Boldness was a defining characteristic of those believers, just as it was for Paul. And the thing about boldness is that boldness is contagious. And cowardice is also contagious. And these believers in Acts 4, they pray for boldness because they wanted to infect one another with courage, not cowardice. And Paul, in his example, is choosing boldness. And his influence is is causing the other believers in Rome to have courage and boldness too, rather than to fall into cowardice. Now, that's a question for us. For those of us who are Christians and part of this church, which are we going to cultivate? What are we going to uh, share with one another? What are we going to catch? Is it boldness, courage, or is it cowardice and fear? Now, Paul was bold, and he was rejoicing, and that was contagious. It affected the other believers in Rome who weren't in prison, they saw his example, and that gave them greater confidence. And uh, you're far more likely to be bold if you're happy. It's difficult, I think, to be courageous if you're, if you're depressed. And you're more likely to be happy if you're bold. And Paul chooses joy, and he lives with courage. And that has a positive impact upon the other believers in the city. They're, like him, getting happy in God and being bold in speaking about Jesus Christ. So Paul's imprisonment seems to have led to an extraordinary explosion of evangelistic confidence. Paul's in prison, but he's confidently, joyfully proclaiming Christ, and the other believers see this, and they grow in confidence and boldness to proclaim Christ too. It's because of his imprisonment, he says, that their confidence has grown. And Paul is confident that God will use his imprisonment. He says, it's, my imprisonment is for Christ. That's why I'm here. Now, the situation was that every four hours, a different soldier would come and get chained to Paul. That's how it worked. He was in, uh, under arrest, but literally 
chained to a, a soldier. And you can imagine the conversations that every four hours a different soldier turns up and you can imagine that soldier saying, okay, what are you here for? What are you done? What are you in for? And Paul's saying, well, I'm here because of Jesus. And off he goes again. Six times a day, uh, a different soldier turning up. What are you in for? I'm here because of Jesus. And Paul says that because of this, the, the message of Jesus is spreading throughout the whole imperial guard. This is, these are the Praetorians. These are the elite of the Roman army. There are about 10,000 of them, and they had particular responsibility to guard Caesar personally and to police the city of Rome. And Paul is very happy about his opportunity to speak to them about Jesus Christ. Uh, and he does that every four hours as the soldiers change. And he chooses happiness, and his happiness, his courage, inspires others. Now, each of us, our example influences others. Each one of us. And we can either encourage or we can discourage each other. And to be honest, every encounter we have with one another, whether it's fleeting or prolonged, we will either encourage or discourage. The way that we speak to one another when we finish this meeting and have a cup of tea together, the way that we interact will either build faith or undermine it. It just does. And Paul chooses to have a positive influence on other people which is causing the church to flourish. And we can choose to either encourage or discourage. Let's, let's be like Paul. Let's be bold. Let's be joyful. Let's encourage boldness in one another. Let's deliberately think about the kind of example that we're setting and how that influences others. The third thing we can see about Paul from this passage is that he has chosen to be relaxed about dodgy preaching. Now, Paul's goal in life is to preach Jesus Christ. He obviously really cares about good theology and godly character. That's very obvious. You read all the letters that Paul writes, we've got in the New Testament, and they're full of instructions about believing the right thing and living in a godly way. He really cares about good theology, and he really cares about godly character. And in this church, we'd care about those things as well. We want our theology, our belief in God, to be clear and true to the word of God and strong and not compromised. And we also want to have godly character, that we follow Jesus, we're his disciples, we live in a way which reflects him and honors him. Those things are important to Paul and they're important to us. But if it comes to it, it seems that Paul would rather have the wrong people preaching Christ than that Christ isn't preached. And some people were obviously making or trying to make life more difficult for Paul. He talks about those who are preaching Christ with envy and rivalry, seeking to undermine him and make life more difficult for him. And we're not sure who these were, but uh, about five years before he was in Rome writing this letter to the Philippians, he had written a letter from Corinth to the church in Rome. And in that letter, which we looked at last year here at Gateway, uh, in chapters 14 and 15 of the letter to the Romans, Paul talks about those in the church who are causing divisions in the church. And it's always been an issue. There's always been church splits, sadly, throughout church history. And it might be that those he's addressing there in Romans 14 and 15 are now kind of trying to undermine him. Whatever. Paul is very honest. Not everybody preaches as they should, but Paul is glad that Christ is preached. Now think about the world we live in today. A, uh, a world in which there are many charlatans 
preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many people who are preaching not with careful attention to theology and doctrine and what is really true. And there are many people preaching whose lives do not reflect how Christ would have us live. And again and again we see that. And there's lots of things I cannot bear to read or watch on TV or read blog posts about because of the, the dodgy theology and the, and the lack of godly character in those who are, who are speaking. That's the reality. But Paul is very confident in God's sovereignty. God can use what is not good and turn it to good. He can take what looks bad and use it for good. So poor preaching is, is never excusable. wouldn't be excusable for me just to turn up without thinking about what I'm going to say and just carry on. Poor preaching isn't excusable, but hallelujah, God can use anything. God can use anything. One of my favorite stories is the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. Spurgeon was, became the, the greatest, most famous preacher of the Victorian era. And it's difficult for us to think what an impact he had when he died. 100,000 people lined the streets of London to watch his funeral procession go past. And he describes his conversion like this. He was on a journey, he was walking, and he got caught in a snowstorm. And uh, this happened. He went into a, a little chapel. So the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up in the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. When he had managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. I know the feeling. Uh, then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit of my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if, <laughs> if you don't obey my text, but if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Now, it was a horrible sermon. <laughs> I mean, we just, I just wouldn't do that. I wouldn't see some, somebody, one of, one of somebody's new here this morning. I wouldn't look at you and point out how you look. Like, you look miserable. <laughs> just, we just wouldn't do that. It's not, it just wouldn't feel appropriate and right. But God can use that. God used that horrible sermon to lead to the salvation of Charles Spurgeon, who saw thousands and thousands and thousands of people come to faith and had a ministry that affected around the globe in terms of his sermons of printed and pamphlets sent around the whole British Empire. Thousands of people around the world came to faith because of Spurgeon because of that wretched sermon. God can use terrible things for great ends. Uh, just before Christmas, there was a lot of controversy about Tyson Fury, the um, boxer, heavyweight boxing champion, won the world championship and said some things which weren't particularly wise. And uh, there was a big campaign started to try and get him off the list for Sports Personality of the Year. And you might have seen this 
little video of Tyson Fury. Have you got anything you can tell us about? about yes, I have. I've got lots to tell you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is that your reaction to what people who want you off the spotty shortlist? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And what about you being stripped of your belt? I mean, that, that, that's, uh, you must be very unhappy with that. What's your reaction to that? Jesus loves me. And he loves you too. And he loves you too. He loves these people in here. And he loves everybody in the world. You All you've got to do is repent of your sins and you will be, get, be forgiven. And do you think you can win spotty? Do you want to win spotty? John 3.16, for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall have eternal life and shall not perish. Okay, Tyson. Uh, any, final, any final message to those people who have criticised you in recent? There's been a lot of criticism from people in signing petitions to the Scottish national people, to all sorts of people. Just give, us, just give us your take on it. Do you stand by your comments? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The only way is through Jesus into heaven. That's all I can say. The A to Z, the Alpha, the Omega. Jesus is the way, the key, and the only way into heaven. Okay, Peace out. Thanks for stopping. <laughs> now, I saw that and it was kind of, oh, no, 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 that's not, no. Just, no, it's just kind of hideously embarrassing this guy quoting John 3.16 and Acts 16 again and again. And again. No, it's just, just want to uh, kind of deny, deny, deny. Nothing to do with us. That's, he's very different. He's a very different person from, from us, and we wouldn't say the kind of things that he says. And It just felt kind of excruciating and embarrassing. But I think actually, I think Paul's response would be more like Philippians 1.18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, that doesn't mean that we endorse every kind of preaching, and certainly I wouldn't endorse everything that Tyson Fury says or the way that everything he's done in his life. There are some dodgy Christians and some dodgy preaching around, but there's a sense actually in which we should relax about that. God's mercy is he can use anything for his glory. God's mercy is he can use someone even like me to preach the word of God. And so Paul has come to that place where he knows that some people are doing it for wrong motives and people who shouldn't be preaching Christ are. And, but the thing that he's most happy about is Christ is preached. That Christ is preached. And sometimes we can worry too much about whether we're doing it right when we just need to do it. We just need to proclaim Christ and not worry so much about our technique and perfection of our words and those things. But just proclaim Christ and trust God that he will use us for his glory and his grace. Fourth thing is that Paul really believed the good news of Jesus was good news. This is the, the life-changing choice he'd made. Jesus is good news. It's good news that Christ is proclaimed. It's, it's worth looking at the story of how Paul got connected with this church in, in Philippi. It's a story told in Acts chapter 16. And uh, this is the account of how Paul and his friends ended up in Philippi in response to a vision. God had uh, given them a, Paul a vision about somebody saying, come and help us. And he'd crossed over to uh, the city of Philippi, across uh, the edge of the, uh, of the Bosphorus, I guess it is now terminology. Um, 
and uh, started to preach the gospel. And three different stories of response to Jesus are recounted in Acts 16. First one's Lydia, verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. First person who responds to the gospel is this woman who wasn't Jewish. She was a, a businesswoman, and she was in Philippi on business, and she's, but she's a follower of the true God. And Paul comes and proclaims Jesus, and she sees uh, Jesus as a pearl of great price, and she responds to him. Wonderful. The second person is very different. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This is a very different person. This is a girl who's a slave doesn't have the same kind of freedom of choice, the financial resources of Lydia. Actually, she's just being used by a corrupt boss. She can tell the future because of demonic activity in her life. And because of that spiritual sensitivity, she recognizes who Paul is and who Paul is proclaiming. And eventually, Paul sets her free in the name of Jesus from this demonic oppression. She's released from it and comes into freedom, liberty, by the name of Jesus Christ. Brilliant. But her owner doesn't like that because no longer can she tell the fortune and so he's not going to earn any money from her. So he arranges for Paul and Silas to get thrown into prison uh, because he's lost his money-earning potential. But that leads to the third person we read about who comes to faith, the Philippian jailer, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaking, shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. If you were a Roman jailer and your prisoners escaped, your life was forfeit, so he would have been executed. And to save the uh, authorities the trouble, and because of the deep sense of shame he would have felt, he was going to commit suicide as he thought his prisoners had got away. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, like Tyson Fury, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your households. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household. He rejoiced that he had believed in God. The proclamation of Jesus Christ was good news for these three people. It was good news for Lydia, a woman of independent means, a businesswoman seeking the truth about God. She found in Jesus Christ the pearl of great, great price. She found what was richer than the goods that she was trading and the life she'd built. She found life in Jesus Christ. 
The good news of Jesus was good news for the slave girl as well. She remained a slave, physically owned by someone, but she was set free from spiritual oppression. That torture that she would have known in her mind and soul all those years, gone, dismissed, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And the proclamation of the gospel was good news for the jailer. He found a greater and a more merciful authority than what he knew in the state of Rome. The gospel is good news for all types of people, all classes of people. These are three very different people. A sophisticated, wealthy businesswoman, an oppressed slave girl, a blue-collar worker, a jail worker. Three very different types of people, three very different classes of people, but all who find the good news of Jesus Christ. Now you can imagine rolling the clock forward 11, 12 years from that moment, that Acts 16. Imagine 11, 12 years later when this letter from Paul arrives in Philippi and the church gather together to open it and to read it together. You can imagine the response of these three people. You can imagine Lydia saying, as she reads Paul describing how Christ is being proclaimed and the gospel is advancing, you can imagine Lydia saying, yes, I found the pearl of great price. That day when, Jesus, when Paul came to the river and spoke about Jesus to me, I found the treasure I've been seeking my whole life. You can imagine the slave girl hearing this letter read out and, and uh, Paul talking about the boldness that those in Rome are now experiencing. And you can imagine that slave girl saying, yeah, I was oppressed, I was held captive by... Uh, demonic oppression by my fears and insecurities and Paul spoke a word in the name of Jesus and I was set free and I've known a courage and a confidence in him ever since. You can imagine the Philippian jailer as these words are read out thinking, yes, I've found uh, authority, a power which is grace and the power of Rome and merciful which Rome is never. I've found a merciful saviour who loves me and preserves my life rather than taking my life. The gospel is good news. That was Paul's big choice in life. He knew it, he believed it, he saved it. Do we believe? Do we believe the gospel is good news? And then the last thing is that Paul knew God had him where he was with purpose. Paul chose, believed that. God's got me here with a real purpose. Paul talks about how the gospel is advancing. And the imagery there is like a Roman legion. A legion advancing, uh, pushing forward, taking ground, uh, taking territory. Now, when Paul writes this, and of course, actually, how he would have written it, it would have been by dictation. He'd have spoken it, and a scribe would have written the letter down. Paul, as he wrote this, the gospel is advancing because I'm in prison. Paul is chained to a Roman soldier as he writes this. And that guard, that member of the Praetorian elite, would have sworn loyalty to Caesar, would have seen Caesar as some kind of demigod, would have seen Caesar as some kind of saviour. He'd have taken an oath of undying loyalty to Caesar. And here is Paul proclaiming Jesus Christ and saying that the message of Jesus Christ is advancing. Now, you look at that objectively, and who looks like the real saviour? What looks the most likely? Who's got the power? Who's got the authority here? Who's got the upper hand? The Roman soldier, a member of the Praetorian, the, the, the special forces of the Roman army, and he's got this little Jewish prisoner chained to his arm who's claiming there is a saviour who is changing everything and has more power even than Caesar. 
What looked more likely? The Roman soldier and his story or Paul and his story? Now you can imagine the Philippian jailer those years later as this letter is read, smiling as he reads about how the gospel is spreading throughout the whole Roman guard, throughout the Praetorian guards. He was probably an ex-soldier himself. That would have been how he'd have got the job of being a jailer, by having served in the legions. And he had found that Jesus has more power than Caesar. He'd known what it was to follow Caesar. He had sworn an oath of loyalty to Caesar himself. But he'd found in Jesus one who had more power than Caesar and one who was merciful, unlike Caesar. And now he reads about how Paul is in jail, but Paul is preaching about Jesus, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading even through the elite Praetorian guard. There's a response to the gospel. What had happened in the Philippian jailer's own life was now happening in the lives of those soldiers in Rome. Now, do we see our circumstances, those of us who know Jesus, do we see our circumstances as means by which the gospel can advance? God had put Paul in a place to reach those who otherwise it would have been impossible to reach with the gospel. How do you get into the elite imperial guard? How do you get a hearing in that setting? How do you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those battle-hardened, cynical, tough soldiers? How do you get in and start to communicate to them? Well, the way you do it is by getting yourself arrested and being chained to them 24 hours a day. And every four hours, a different soldier coming along and saying, what are you here for? I'm here because of Jesus. That's how you do it. And Paul was confident. Now, this wasn't life circumstance. I'm sure anybody would choose to be chained, shackled up all day to, a, to, a, to another man. If they just think of the indignity of the whole day being chained to somebody else. But Paul knew. He knew that God had him there for a purpose. That through him being chained to that soldier, the gospel had even got into Caesar's inner circle. And boldness was coming to the other believers. Now, where has Jesus placed you? Where has he placed you to do some joyful preaching? He's put you somewhere where no one else is. He's put you in a place where you have connections which other people don't. He's put you in a circle of relationship and connection where you can joyfully witness the reality of Jesus Christ at work in your life. And the gospel can advance again. Paul had a positive psychology, but it wasn't simply positive thinking. It wasn't simply that he decided that he was going to be a happy person. He was happy because Jesus had made himself known to him. Paul had seen Jesus as who he was, as Savior, as Lord, as friend. That made him happy. It meant that every day he chose happiness. He chose joy. He chose boldness. He chose to proclaim Christ. And for us here who know Jesus, let's do that as well. Let's get ourselves happy in God. Let's be joyful in him and encourage one another. And let's preach Christ joyfully, wherever we are and whenever we have opportunity. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that... Your gospel, your good news is good news for us. Thank you that it was good news for Lydia. It was good news for that slave girl. It was good news for that jailer. It was good news for the soldiers who found themselves chained to Paul four hours a day, day 
in, day out. Lord, thank you. It's good news for us. It's good news for our town. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, cause us to know again the joy of our salvation and to have confidence. I pray that we'd choose happiness day by day as we look to you, the source of our happiness. And uh, we'd see how you put us where you put us for a purpose, that we're not just drifting aimlessly through life, but you've given us a task, you've given us a mission, you've given us a great calling, that we're to proclaim Christ and we're to encourage one another. And I pray that we'd do that, Lord. I pray that uh, we would build each other up more and more. We'd encourage each other in joy, happiness, and faith, and boldness. And that we might see the gospel advancing in our day with greater and greater power. Pray in your name, King Jesus. Amen.